Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. It's a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics. We're here with our guest, Dr. Donna Harrison, who is the the CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. It's the largest non-sectarian pro-life organization in the world with over 6,000 members across the, across the United States. Dr. Harrison, is just I just heard her present a, a fascinating paper entitled The Over-the-Counter Abortion. And so we've asked Dr. Harrison to come on and talk to us a little bit about that particular thing. So Donna, thank you so much for being with us and welcome. Well, thank you for inviting me, Scott. Tell us, what what exactly do you mean by the -the over-the-counter abortion? Well, what I mean by that is abortion drugs, which will, uh, what currently are, and may soon be very much more so, available to anybody without visiting a doctor, without even verifying that the woman's pregnant, without knowing how far along she is. It's really dangerous. But at, at present, these, these all have to be under a physician's care, correct? No. Actually, there's about 86 different websites where you can just go online and order the drug without any prescription, without any physician care. It's usually shipped from China or India. And one of, one of the studies that looked at these drugs found that mo- a, a large percent of those drugs didn't even have the amount of drug that they were supposed to have in the packages. Packages came broken and empty, and it's it, we, you don't even know what you're getting. So, but it, they're available. So to, to call this an over-the-counter abortion drug really is no exaggeration then? It's it, no exaggeration. And right now, the Food and Drug Administration is considering removing the only requirements that keep this drug from going physically, legally over-the-counter— and that is the REMS, which is the Risk Evaluation Mitigation Strategy. But we'll get into that more later. So, so these are easily accessible. How expensive are they? Can most people, if not virtually all Americans, afford them? Well, I haven't done the, the run of the websites recently. But yes, most Americans could afford them. And what really concerns me is that disgruntled boyfriends can afford them. Mm. Pimps and abusers can afford them. Wow. Um, angry girlfriends can afford them. Uh, you know, someone who's angry with somebody else. So anybody can afford them and anybody can can cause a woman to abort even without her consent or even her knowledge. If, if you had to guess, what would you say would be the reasons why these are not being regulated more and there's not more concern about this from the top in our government and leadership down? You have to understand the FDA is an administrative agency. That means they follow the dictates of the administration. So, for example, when RU-486 was first being considered for FDA approval, Bill Clinton sent a letter (laughs) via Donna Shalala to the manufacturer in France saying, you will bring these drugs to the United States, even though Roussel Uclaf, who was the French manufacturer, was afraid of of the potential for lawsuits because we have such a uncontrolled medical system. So they, the manufacturer of the drug, uh, in the one who held the patent rights, actually gave the drug to Population Council slash Planned Parenthood, gave them the right to manufacture and distribute because Rousseau-Clough didn't want the legal liability when these drugs cause complications. 
So Donna, without getting too technical, tell us exactly how a drug-induced abortion actually works. Okay. So when a woman becomes pregnant and that new human being is there in her womb, actually from the time of fertilization, she gets a signal to her brain to, uh, and her brain then gives a signal to the ovary to make a hormone called progesterone. Progesterone causes the woman's body to be able to receive the embryo for implanting and causes the woman's body to be able to continue to feed that and nourish that baby. So progesterone, which actually, if I break it down, pro means for, just means uh, pregnancy, and own is steroid hormone. So it's the for pregnancy steroid hormone. Her body makes that, and she has to have progesterone in order to carry the pregnancy. So what, what are you 46, mifeprax, mifepristone, it's all the same drug. What that drug does is it blocks the action of progesterone at the level of the cell. So it causes the mother's body to not be able to nourish that baby. But what's even more concerning is that drug uh, actually blocks progesterone receptors all over a woman's body. So a woman has progesterone receptors in her breast, in her brain, in her adrenal glands, and no, and in her immune system, by the way. And nobody is actually looking at what that progesterone or what that mifeprex, that drug does when it blocks progesterone all over her body. We know that it causes the woman's body to not feed the baby. The baby dies. And then there's a second drug called mesoprostol or Cytotec, which causes the uterus to contract and squeeze out the baby. So that's how the two-drug system works. And it works 90, let's give it 95% of the time, around seven weeks gestation. That is three weeks after she misses her period. But by the time you get out to 10 weeks gestation, this is down into the 80% working. So you've got, you've got 15, one out of six women in which it won't fully empty the uterus. And as she gets further and further in the pregnancy, the less and less effective this drug combination becomes. What that means is there are significant risks to that woman when she has tissue left inside, when she hemorrhages from the drug, and when she has her immune system blocked so that she can't fight off normal infections. So one of the things that we know from this mifepristone mesoprostol combination is that women are more susceptible to a fatal, a rapidly fatal infection called Clostridium sordellii. And there were, at the very beginning of mifepristone's approval, there were four women in California that rapidly died. And it turned out it was from this normal soil bacteria that normally women can fight off, but these women couldn't fight off the Clostridium sordellii because of the immune suppressant effect of both mifepristone and mesoprostol. Now, that's heartbreaking. I had never heard that four women in California died from this, so I can only imagine how many others did. You said a moment ago that we don't really know the effects of some of these drugs that are taken. Is that because of a lack of curiosity? Is that because money that's being made? Is it a blindness? Am I naive or cynical? <laughs> Isn't this exactly what the medical community is supposed to do? Well, the medical community, and especially the FDA, is actually tasked with overseeing safety of drugs. But it turns out that to do a research study, you have to have money. And the only one invested in doing research on mifepristone and mesoprostol is the abortion industry. Wow. And why in the world 
would they invest money in finding out the complications when what they're there for is to sell the drug? These are these are money-making industries. And remember, Planned Parenthood held the right to manufacture and distribute these drugs. So, so Donna, let's go go back to the to the medical part of this. In in those cases where the drug combination doesn't work, uh, and the you know there's there's some remnant of the unborn child left in the womb. Uh, what what's the procedure that's done? How, what what happens next? And you know how, how do we know that the you know the the, the general practice physician who the woman probably is seeing um, is actually qualified to do the follow-up work that's necessary. Well, you hit on a very important point. We don't know that the person seeing the woman in the emergency room even knows that she's taken the abortion drug, and we don't know whether or not that person is going to be capable of rapidly responding with, with blood transfusion if needed, especially for women who are in rural areas there isn't always blood transfusion available, and there isn't always an OB-GYN there capable of rapidly emptying her uterus. So it's a real risk, especially in rural areas where this drug is being targeted, where, where women are being targeted for the use of this drug. Now, may- I'm, I'm glad you asked about how do we know what the complications are, because I just got uh, finished with publishing with a, a group uh, of OB-GYNs the uh, all of the adverse event reports that were submitted to the FDA after the use of mifepristone from its approval to uh, February of 2019. And what we found was very interesting on a number of different levels. What we found was that there were about 3,000, 3,197 to be specific, there were about 3,000 adverse events and almost 16% of them didn't even have enough information to determine what happened to the woman. So we were en- ended up with about 2,600 where we could actually determine what happened to the woman. And 20 of these were deaths. 500 plus were life-threatening adverse events. So the woman would lose uh, all of her blood volume and have to be transfused 10 units of blood. Um, the, the type of blood transfusions that you see with major car accidents, okay? These, this, this is massive hemorrhage or infections so bad that she spends time in the ICU. Um, These are really serious. And if that woman in the rural area hadn't, I I mean, if that woman were in the rural area and she didn't have access to life-saving procedures, these 520 would be dead, okay? In, In the developing world, these 520 would be dead. So, the life-threatening situations are really the, the how quickly she could get to emergency medical care. There were another 2,000 that were severe. And these women are, are hospitalized. They're, they have tissue left inside. They hemorrhage massively. They get big infections. And this is the kind of thing that is really frightening when we added all of these adverse events up. But what was even worse is that based on the literature, we should have seen 185,000 adverse events. So what we know from our looking at the FDA data is that the FDA only gets 2% of the actual adverse events that were taking place. Wow. So we have a, a extremely important public health problem that the FDA is turning a blind eye to. And what's even worse is that in 2016, 
the FDA told the manufacturer of the drug, oh, you don't have to tell us about adverse events anymore. Just tell us about the deaths. So that means this information is not being collected by anyone. No one is looking. And it was at the same time that the FDA said, oh, and by the way, you can extend the use of this drug further and further into pregnancy. They said 10 weeks instead of the, the seven weeks. And no one's tracking the implications or the results. It's a, it's a real major, um, it's a major blind, willing, willful blindness on the part of the FDA to make a change in the, in, the, in the way this drug is used and then not look at the consequences. It's a blind and dumb on purpose. And I think that the, the country needs to hold the FDA accountable for this kind of willful blindness. It's no exaggeration to say that's just dis- stunning and disturbing on the highest level. So if I heard you correctly, this over-the-counter drug, we know of 20 deaths, 520 that probably would be, thousands of other complications, and this is 2% of what's been reported. So we really don't know the extent of this, and there's a lack of curiosity from the FDA. Did that kind of sum up? Did I get the heart of it? Not 2% of what's been reported, because we saw everything that was reported to the FDA. It's 2% of what we know are the complications, because from other studies, we know that the complication rate, the rate of women going into the emergency room, is somewhere between 5 and 8%. That means one out of 20 women end up in the ER. So based on that, and based on the fact that there's 3.7 million chemical abortions done, we should have seen 185,000 adverse event reports, and we saw only 3,000. So that tells us that the FDA doesn't have a clue. And in in an era, I mean, we're not talking 1950, okay? This This is 2021 where we can know to the minute who's died of COVID, okay? But we can't, we, we are willfully blind to what happens when a woman has a complication from abortion. And this is just unconscionable. You make We, a- we moan and complain about the, uh, and rightly so, about the horrible maternal mortality rate in the United States, and especially sure. horrible maternal mortality rate in the African American population. And yet, we don't track the mortality from abortion, which is part of maternal mortality. It's just such willful blindness. You make the claim that the way this is done normally would constitute malpractice in any other area, not just of medicine, but within gynecology itself. What do you mean by that? So when uh, uh, normally when a woman comes in and she has a miscarriage or, or she thinks she's having a miscarriage, she's bleeding in the first trimester, what a a real OBGYN does is they do an ultrasound and they look to see is the baby alive or is the baby dead or is the baby in the uterus or is the baby in the tube because all of those change how you manage the patient. So if a woman's bleeding and she comes in and she's got a positive pregnancy test and you do an ultrasound and there's no pregnancy in the uterus, that woman may have a pregnancy in her tube. And so you have to do the procedures necessary to treat an ectopic pregnancy. In fact, some of the deaths from Mifeprex abortion were from women that never had an ultrasound and were given the Mifeprex and they had a pregnancy in their tube. And when they were having terrible pain and bleeding and they called the clinic, the clinic said, oh, that's a normal part of a Mifeprex abortion. Take some Tylenol. And the women bled to death internally because they were having a ruptured ectopic pregnancy. So it would be malpractice to not determine 
to not make a diagnosis. You have to diagnose, is the woman pregnant? And where is the pregnancy before you do any kind of treatment? However, in this over-the-counter willy-nilly use of abortion drugs, what you have is a, a self-report, oh, I'm pregnant, and maybe they're even male and not even you know capable of being pregnant, but they, they over the internet or over the phone say, oh, I'm pregnant, and I'm, I think I'm this far along. No one looks. No one does an ultrasound. So if that woman really is pregnant, and if she really has a pregnancy in her tube, she can die, and no one will know. So this is what I'm talking about. It's malpractice not to make a diagnosis prior to implementing a therapy. That's just common sense. And what's even worse is there's no way in creation that an abortionist can give adequate informed consent to a woman without knowing how far along in pregnancy she is. Because the further in pregnancy she is, the higher the risk of a complication. So for a woman at seven weeks, you would say you have a you know, 95% chance that uh, the chemical abortion will cause you to lose the baby. But if she's at 14 weeks, she has a one in, th one in three chance that she's going to need surgery, a 30% chance. So without knowing how far along she is, you can't give informed consent. You can't tell her what her risks are. So this is what I'm saying. If, if you would do this in a in any other situation where you don't actually make a diagnosis and you just implement a treatment and, and to make matters worse, you're not even there to handle the complications. That would be malpractice. So why do I say that? Because when we looked at the adverse event reports, nearly half of the DNCs that were done in women who were bleeding or had complications, nearly half of those were not done by the abortionists. They were done by the ER doc. So as a OB-GYN, we are gynecological surgeons, a surgeon takes care of their own complications. And if you're not able to take care of your complications, the common complications, you don't do surgery. That's just part of being a physician. So that's what I'm saying. This, the, the way women are being kicked to the curb in abortion would constitute malpractice in any other area of gynecology. Now, Donna, you make the claim in your paper that uh, the, these over-the-counter abortion drugs are now available on college campuses uh, in many states. You, you mentioned California, it's actually required by law that they be available on, on uh, public university college campuses. Did, did I read that correctly? Well, that's my understanding that the, the law in California says that um, Mifeprex will be part of the campus uh, health system. But what concerns me about that is who is going to take care of the complications. When she's hemorrhaging in her dorm room and she's passing a fetus on the floor of the common bathroom, Jeez. who's going to be there? Who's going to take care of it? And, and think, of the, think of the infectious disease issues of that much blood happening in a common bathroom. Who's going to clean that up? I think I'm about so, to be sick. I'm sorry. <laughs> and maybe I'm being too graphic. No, not at all. Not at all. Now, Don, Donna, you also, you make the very provocative claim that uh, pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are an inseparable triad. T tell us a little bit more what you mean by that. That sounds like a, a pretty out there claim. Yeah, okay. Uh, but, so, so sp spell out what you mean by that. Okay. So, if 
so APLOG, uh, American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, has a, a really important um, committee opinion on this topic. So if you go to applog.org and you look under resources, and that'll be a drop down and look under committee opinions, we have a committee opinion uh, that details it. So I'm going to just, you know, take that multiple page document and condense it into two or three sentences. So sex trafficking will involve some pregnancies, just kind of by definition. I don't care what kind of contraceptive they use, sex trafficking will involve pregnancies. In order to manage the herd, those sex traffickers often have a arrangement with abortion clinics and frequently Planned Parenthood so that there's a don't ask, don't tell policy when a 12-year-old or 13-year-old comes in for her second abortion. So abortion enables pimps and sex traffickers to manage their herd. Part of the profit made from sex trafficking is also pornography. So these, these girls are, are often photographed in you know, horrible situations, and the pornography feeds the, the person who consumes sex trafficking. So the whole triad of pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion, they feed off of each other. And the victims are the women. And the reason we know this is there's been a couple of really good studies, one by Laura Lederer, interviewing women who have come out of sex trafficking, the sex trafficking victims. And what they said was the most common place where they encountered medical care was Planned Parenthood. So they, and, and one out of three of them uh, were taken to a Planned Parenthood clinic for abortions. So it is an enabling uh, industry, the abortion industry enables the sex trafficking industry and the pornography industry feeds the, the demand for sex trafficking. And that's why we said they're an inseparable triad. When you reduce the availability of abortion, you reduce the ability of the sex trafficker to manage their herd without being detected. And when you make abortion over the counter, and by the way, <laughs> some of these websites I told you about, they offer a bulk discount for um, Mifeprex for buying the abortion drug. Now, who in the world is going to get Mifeprex in bulk yep. except a sex trafficker? Mm. And this isolates women from even encountering, even encountering Planned Parenthood. So I, it, it's a very difficult and really dark uh, fact that sex trafficking and abortion feed off of each other. Donna, maybe I'm just being naive about this, but my, my understanding was that physicians who treat women are obligated to report to, uh, to Child Protective Services or to law enforcement when you know, underage girls are coming in, uh, you know, and, and it's obvious that they've been having, you know, been having sexual relations you know, with, with somebody who is you know, under the law would constitute statutory rape. Correct. Uh, but it doesn't sound like any of that's going on. Well, a law is as good as the enforcement that is willing to be given to it. So, for example, um, there was one case in, I believe it was Atlanta, where a 13-year-old was coming in for her second abortion. And the it was a Planned Parenthood clinic. And the, the uh, clinic staff was interviewed later by law enforcement people saying, why didn't you report this? And the clinic staff said, well, she looked like she was being well taken care of. We had no reason to suspect abuse. 
And I'm, I'm reading this thinking, a 13-year-old for her second abortion? That is by definition abuse. By definition. So you, you, have, you have to have law enforcement people and judges who are willing to enforce the laws on the books. We can spend all this effort in passing laws. And if the laws aren't enforced, then they're nullified. So I, I think we need to, we as, a, as, citizen, as citizens, need to take a more active role in ensuring that the laws on reporting a statutory rape are actually enforced. And that will do a lot for decreasing sex trafficking. You obviously have a real passion and a heart for this for, for obvious reasons. But what has the feedback been from Christians, non-Christians, other OBGYNs, non-doctors when you speak up on this and draw attention to it? Well, I'll speak for OBGYNs. Most OBGYNs are very busy. Most OBGYNs are not wanting to get involved in controversial things and they want to they want to go home and spend some time with their family. Hmm. Um, so it, it's a I, I understand why my colleagues you know, don't want to get involved in something that is very difficult to talk about and, and you know, raises controversy. Um, with other people, I think, I think there isn't enough light shed. You know, when you shed the light in the room, the cockroaches run. And mm. I think when what you're doing right now by opening up this topic to people who can then go and I encourage you, go double check what I'm saying, triple check it. Get informed on what's happening in the country regarding uh, chemical abortion, drug-induced abortion, and then take some action. Because we, we need people to become aware, and it takes time to become aware, but, but Google it. But go to our website. I mean, we have tons of information about what's happening with chemical abortion, and, and we need people to start enforcing laws. But Donna, you, you suggest also that most OBGYNs don't perform abortions. That's correct. Right. They don't. Uh, so most OBGYNs, so there's been three uh, national surveys now, um, two done by the abortion industry. And, <laughs> and they show that, that only somewhere between um, 7 and maybe up to 15% of OBGYNs who are, who are not otherwise affiliated with abortion, only between 7 and 15% of OBGYNs actually perform abortions in their practice. And it's not because they don't know how to empty a uterus at any gestational age. We all do. That's what OBGYN training is about. We can empty a uterus in 10 minutes at any gestational age. But we know that that human being inside, our, uh, inside the womb is, a, is our second patient. So why would we kill it? Why would we kill him or her inside the womb? So OB-GYN is intrinsically a pro-life specialty. And you, you don't go into OB-GYN because you want to remove tissue. You go into OB-GYN to care for the human beings that have been given you to care for. That's what it means to be a Hippocratic physician. So it's important that that people understand most OB-GYNs don't do abortions. Mm. And, and that's despite enormous pressure enormous pressure to do abortion and it's very lucrative to become an abortionist you, you don't have any malpractice issues because women are are hesitate to, to sue you uh, don't have any preoperative care 
You frequently don't see the patient at all until she's up in stirrups. You go in 10 minutes, 250 bucks, you can make thousands of dollars an hour. But OB-GYNs don't do that because they care about their women. They care about their patients. And that unborn human being inside their womb is their second patient. That was foundational to OB-GYN training. So despite all that, the American College of OB-GYNs which is the largest uh, OB-GYN professional organization, is rapidly pro-abortion, stuffing abortion down the throats of OB-GYNs. And many, many of us have just got tired of it. And that's actually where uh, my organization, the American Association of Pro-Life OB-GYNs, came from. We got tired of the rapid pro-abortion um, policies and, and uh, lobbying that uh, ACOG is doing. And we said, there needs to be an uh, OB-GYN professional society who is sane, uh, on the issue of abortion, I find Don. I find that uh, the the, percent, the percentages you cite of OB/GYNs who do not perform abortions to be very encouraging, and the reasons pretty compelling for that. Um, as you look at the pro-life movement and the abortion landscape, one final question: what What gives you hope? What What are you encouraged about as you look <laughs> at that landscape? Well, the good news is truth is on our side. Scientific truth Amen. is on our side. And so if you, if you look at the fact that there is another human being, and most people with ultrasound today have no problem seeing that other human being inside the womb, then it, it becomes harder and harder to defend the, the lie that there's just a blob of tissue in there. Blobs of tissue don't, don't smile and suck their thumbs and, and perform for you. And, and, Unless we're all a blob of tissue, I guess. Um, so I'm encouraged that eventually truth wins. And, and we are winning. Most people do not, it, most people understand there is another human being inside. And most people, especially the younger generation, are more pro-life than ever. ever. So I think that's the most encouraging thing. Donna, this has been actually just incredibly insightful. Uh, I have to admit, Part of this has actually been pretty discouraging uh, to realize Sorry. that the uh, you know the, the over-the-counter abortion is is not only becoming a reality but is one. Um, I would encourage our listeners to look at the, your website of the American Association of Pro-Life OB/GYNs uh, for lots more information that that you've suggested and to become a lot more informed about this, uh, particularly the over over-the-counter abortion. Um, I think you know. I've thought about for you know for the first time this this triad between pornography and sex trafficking and over the counter abortion. Uh, you know that's a that's a real that's just such an, an incredible phenomena that we just, we just have a hard time wrapping our arms around that. Um, but I want to I commend your work to our listeners, uh, and we're so grateful for the the work that you're doing, being being out here on the front lines of this, looking at the research that's available, uh, and continuing to 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 make the truth known. Uh, I'm very encouraged with the notion that truth wins, and truth is on our side on this. Uh, but these are some hard things for our listeners to 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 wrap their arms around. So, Donna, we really appreciate you coming on with us. This has been a this has been really a, a, I think a challenging and difficult podcast to hear and to record uh, just because the, the reality is so dark uh, as we look at some of this. But I think the, the good news is that uh, 
you know, technology, as you mentioned, I think is definitely on the side of the pro-life movement. Uh, it is, I think you're right, it's becoming harder and harder to refer to the unborn child simply as a clump of cells or a blob of tissue, sort of analogous to another body part. Um, and I think, you know, thank the Lord for the, the advances in technology that have enabled us to peer into the womb with much more precision, uh, and I think it make it make it much more difficult uh, to dismiss the personhood of the unborn child. So Donna, thank you so much for being with us. This has been a, a really arresting time. Uh, and we're so grateful for, for your work and for your practice and for the uh, American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to be on. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our brand new Master's in Marriage and Family Therapy uh, offered on our campus. Uh, If you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Donna Harrison uh, and her organization, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.